Okay, welcome everybody to uh, what I assume is one of the... Yeah, I was going to do that, but it wouldn't have had the same effect, so uh, let's... Uh, but thank you, John. Um, welcome to uh, this, I assume, very much anticipated uh, session of our day-to-day. -day. Um, how we're going to work it is that John is going to speak... He says for 20 to 30 minutes, I'm going to be only quite strict and, and rugby tackle him uh, if, he, if he goes over time. And then we will open it up for questions. We have 45 minutes, uh, so we hope we will have uh, uh, some considerable time for questions. I'll probably collect a few and then allow John to uh, answer them in whatever order he likes. So John, uh, John Burko, uh, former Speaker of the House of Commons, welcome and go ahead. Tim, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming, thank you for staying, thank you for being here in good numbers in keen anticipation of the next session, which is entirely to be expected and applauded. I spooked Tim at the outset by saying that I wanted to broach with him a question that I'd often been tempted to pose to him, but had thus far failed to do, and he looked suitably unnerved. And my rather prosaic inquiry was whether his research into the Conservative Party, for which he is renowned, spoke to Conservative values on his part or merely an academic interest in that party. And he rushed to assure me that it was very much the latter rather than the former. Now, I am bound to say that having heard myself introduced, I can hardly wait to hear myself speak. Although whether you'll feel the same way at the end of my remarks is a matter for legitimate speculation and conjecture, but what I should like to do at the outset, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, is just to row back momentarily to what I will call the causes of that 2016 referendum. To wit, it seems to me, there were, in essence, two. Conservative members of Parliament on the one hand and UKIP electoral performance on the other. On the subject of Conservative members of Parliament, I think it is as well to remember that there was quite a lot of parliamentary activity that conduced to an atmosphere in which, over a period, David Cameron came to change his mind from opposition to an in-out referendum to support for it. Very specifically, I can think of certain landmarks along the way. In October 2011, there was a now largely forgotten but very, very, very significant debate under the auspices of the House of Commons Backbench Business Committee on the merits of an in-out referendum. The significance was in the debate and in the nature and scale of the rebellion rather than in the result. If memory serves me correctly, the government won the vote against a referendum proposition by 483 to 111. That wasn't the issue. The government loyalists and the official opposition voted against the referendum proposition. The issue was that in support of David Nuttall, the Berry backbench Conservative MP proposing the motion, there was a very, very, very substantial number of Conservative rebels. Specifically, if memory serves me correctly, 81 Conservative rebels, more than 50 of whom, to the incredulity and horror of the government whips, were new MPs from whom displays of rebellion were expected to be somewhere between rare and non-existent. So that was an auger of future conservative backbench intent. And it was followed up in May 2013 by the so-called Barron Amendment to the Queen's speech. The amendment being in the name of John Barron, the Essex conservative MP. Indeed, at the time, John's influence was such that the joke in Westminster was, what's the difference between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party? Answer, the Conservative Party is run by only one baron. <laughs> I think if I remember rightly, 
92 people signed his amendment and 114 Conservative MPs voted for it. Those factors, alongside the spectacular performance of UKIP in the 2014 European elections, resulting in an increase in its seat tally in the European Parliament of 11 to 24, and meaning that that party won the European elections in the United Kingdom, were hugely significant in confirming an earlier flying of the referendum kite by David Cameron and causing him publicly to commit that a majority Conservative government after the election would hold an in-out referendum. My own theory, which manifestly I cannot prove, but which I dangle before you for your reflection, is that David Cameron never intended or aspired to have a referendum in-out on Britain in Europe. He made that pledge very specific to a majority Conservative government. In all likelihood, he expected that at best, looking at the state of the polls in 2014, he would be able to cobble together again a coalition government or some comparable arrangement with Nick Clegg. And my honest view, for which I do not blame David Cameron, I'm very happy to blame him for a vast miscellany of other things, is that he was probably more comfortable depending upon Nick Clegg than he would have been depending upon Bill Cash or John Redwood. So I'm not convinced that he meant to honour the commitment because I think he probably didn't expect that he'd have to do so. If there was another hung parliament or a coalition government flowing therefrom or a confidence and supply arrangement, he would be able neatly and nimbly to extricate himself from the pledge by saying, awfully sorry, no can do. It was a commitment if we had a majority on our own and we don't, so there will be no referendum because Nick objects. But that was the background to the referendum I don't believe there was any inevitability about it whatsoever. There are those who say, oh, well, there had to be a referendum because support was on the march for it. Well, support within the Conservative Party was, but if you look at salience, which pollsters ordinarily do, there's no evidence that there was a humongous public clamour for an in-out referendum. But that is history, and it is a matter perhaps only of interest to academics and columnists, it is nevertheless a matter, it seems to me, of continuing interest. Let's look secondly, ladies and gentlemen, at that EU Referendum Act itself, 2015. At third reading on the 7th of September 2015, the bill was carried by 316 votes to 53, the SNP opposing the measure. The support for it was much less great than at second reading, because at third reading, the official opposition didn't get behind it, but equally didn't want to vote against it. I'm making the point simply that it passed handsomely, though with lesser support than at an earlier stage. And the point, it seems to me, of particular interest about that act was that there was no threshold requirement in it for the delivery of a far-reaching and potentially irrevocable constitutional change. I'm not saying there's anything shameful about that. I'm not saying that there had to be such a provision. What is interesting is that there was no serious consideration given to that possibility, point one. And point two, as we know, there was no provision for 16 and 17-year-olds to vote. Now, I'm looking in the direction of Tom Brake, who is in my eye line, and he will doubtless chunter from a sedentary position in immediate correction of me if I'm mistaken in what I'm about to say. But I think I'm right in saying that the Liberal Democrats proposed an amendment to the legislation that would have allowed 16 and 17-year-olds to vote. And I have a distinct recollection that the Honourable Gentleman, the member for Orkney and Shetland, Mr Alistair Carmichael, was himself closely associated with that move. But it failed, and it failed because David Cameron didn't want the wider read-across 
and ongoing implications of votes for 16 and 17 year olds in other elections. Perhaps because David opposed the idea in principle, perhaps because he thought that 16 and 17 year olds were not especially likely to vote conservative, or perhaps because of a judicious combination of both factors. But either way, no threshold requirement, no votes for 16 and 17 year olds. And I think it is safe to say, I'm making this point, if you will, certainly in terms of the Brexit argument, dispassionately and non-evaluatively, the truth of the matter is the reason why neither of those ideas was pursued with any great vigor, still less unremittingly, was that most of the Westminster establishment, including myself, I readily concede, thought deep down that Remain would prevail. And there was a big difference between the opinion in Westminster and more widely in London and the Southeast and the opinion that was starting to become deeply entrenched in other parts of the country. Something of a chasm between the so-called elite and parts of the UK which felt discombobulated from the political system of which they were at least ostensibly a part. Lots of people voted in the way they did in the referendum for all sorts of different reasons, some genuinely in favour of Brexit or by virtue of their opposition to immigration. I know of people who voted, as somebody mentioned earlier in the panel discussion, against the government and for Brexit to register his strenuous opposition to the increase in tuition fees. And more widely, there were people who voted against because they wanted to give the Cameron government a kick up the backside. But the reality is that there was no safe place for Remainers vested in that legislation. And it therefore simply depended on a playing out of the arguments. I turn to the third feature of what I would like in my contribution, ladies and gentlemen, to cover. And it is this, that sometimes referred to as three-year period of indecision, of stasis, of paralysis, but what I will, as will become clear, describe as a two-year period of indecision. We started in 2016, immediately after that referendum, and after the despatch following the skullduggery of Michael Gove, of Boris Johnson to the sidelines, with Theresa May as Prime Minister rushing to mouth the mantra, Brexit means Brexit. And notwithstanding the widespread pillorying and even excoriation of her for repeatedly sticking to that refrain, it was effective, it seems to me, for the purpose for which it was devised and articulated, which was doubtless to assuage the concerns of the Brexiteers and to reassure them that although she had not been one of them, though she was no more a cheerleader for Brexit than David Cameron had been, she was democratically determined to do her duty in the delivery of Brexit. I then fondly imagined, I readily admit to you, that something resembling a clear, coherent narrative about and plan for Brexit would emerge conceivably within weeks. Not a fully developed negotiating mandate, but a clear narrative and a plan for Brexit. And the first rude shock I had as a member of the public as a member of parliament and sitting in the speaker's chair came on the 5th of September 2016 when my old friend, and he is an old friend whom I much respect, David Davis, who was one of the troika of Brexiteers appointed to key posts alongside Liam Fox and Boris Johnson, came to the chamber of the House of Commons as the Secretary of State for exiting the European <coughs> Union. He had a bit of a swagger about him. And as I said in my recently published book, Unspeakable, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and available in all good bookshops, 
I was genuinely pleased for David because he hadn't been a minister for 19 years. I happen to think he's a very bright and astute character with a real contribution to make to British public life. So in a personal sense, I was pleased for him. And actually, for somebody who is not a natural parliamentary speaker or platform orator, he's much better in my experience on the media, David performed quite well in straightforward communication terms. He was confident, he was chipper, he was quite pithy, he looked unfazed, he was tremendously self-confident, and he gave every impression of feeling that it had gone very well. He was at the dispatch box for two hours that afternoon, partly because I wanted everybody who wanted to ask a question of him to have the chance to do so. And he was questioned by no fewer than 85 backbenchers. And in the course of those exchanges, it was as clear as mud what the Brexit strategy was to be. He talked about the enunciation of some clear principles, putting the national interest first, restoring sovereignty, seeking consensus. Ladies and gentlemen, if David had come to the Chamber of the House of Commons and said, I resolve and I declare to this House that I will put the UK national interest last, that it will be no priority of mine despite campaigning for Brexit to restore British sovereignty. And consensus in my mind, Mr. Speaker, is a dirty word and I will not chase after it. That would have been a surprise. Simply to say all the things that he did say came as absolutely no surprise at all, but it didn't seem to me that they amounted to a set of principles. They were really pretty prosaic platitudes. That of itself isn't a huge indictment necessarily of David personally. He was by then taking the government shilling, he was part of the team, and he had to sing from a collective hymn sheet, which I respect. And what was abundantly clear to me was that the government at that point hadn't got any really clear sense of how it was going to proceed. What did Brexit mean? What did it connote? What did it demand? What did it require? What did it exclude. None of those things was apparent. And at the end of the exchanges, there were two very key moments. And it's now three and a half years ago, and I remember it as keenly as if it was yesterday. One came when the SNP spokesperson, Stephen Gethins, called out at the end with split-second timing when David sat down after his initial statement. Is that it? <laughs> and the other was when Ken Clark, in a very, very effective, albeit typically genial, intervention, said that he wanted the Secretary of State to take as long as possible and to reflect and converse as widely as necessary before coming back to the House with some clear sense of what Brexit meant which was Ken's very polite way of saying, nice try, but it didn't amount to anything. Then you had the Conservative Party conference in September 20, October 2016, with the Prime Minister making only the most fleeting reference to the matter, and specifically in almost bullet point form saying, invocation of Article 50 by end of March, 2017. So that was the headline commitment that she wanted to make. And scarcely anything else was said. You then had the January 2017 speech at Lancaster House, which was widely regarded as the first of the explicit, clean, hard, no-nonsense Brexit postures. At any rate, it was taken by the Brexiteers as an extraordinarily reassuring signal that she intended to go about it in an uncluttered fashion and without much by way of compromise with what they regarded as the true faith of Brexit. You then had the pursuit of the general election in 2017, and it was a gamble. And the gamble was taken by Theresa May to give herself the majority to proceed with whatever form of Brexit by then she was privately 
favouring. That must have been her motivation. I don't say that in a pejorative sense. It's simply a statement of fact. You would call an election in order to win, and you'd call an election in order to win with a better majority in order to deliver what you by then had decided you wanted. But the gamble failed. And she not only didn't get a bigger majority, she got none at all. And what struck me afterwards, not just sitting in the chair, but more widely as a citizen, as perverse and inexplicable about the 11-day period between the 8th of June and the state opening on the 19th of June 2017, was not only that the Prime Minister, Theresa May, didn't announce a different, more nuanced, collegiate, cross-party, reach-across-the-house approach to Brexit, but that, as far as I could, Tim, discern, the idea never crossed her mind. She simply went about the business of getting the confidence and supply agreement, securing the DUP's signature, announcing it in Downing Street, and operating very much as though, back to work, business as usual, on we proceed. And it was then a further year I remind you, and a month, when in July 2018, the government published the white paper on the back of the Chequers meeting, the route to a facilitated customs arrangement, though leaving not so much opaque, but simply dangling unaddressed the issue of the Irish border. So the thesis that I want to put to you, with all the force and rhetorical insistence at my command, ladies and gentlemen, is this. I accept that there was a long period of unresolved Brexit conflict and tension, because that is a matter of recorded fact. What I do not accept is the narrative that has come to be concentrated and entrenched in large parts of the predominantly Brexit-supporting media, that this stasis, this irresolution, this paralysis was the fault of those perfidious or treacherous members of parliament. Ladies and gentlemen, the normal course of events is governmental initiation in parliament and for the most part control of the order paper, it was for the government to come and say what it wanted to do to implement its policy, and it didn't for two years after the referendum. That wasn't Parliament's fault. That wasn't the fault of the Brexit Select Committee. That wasn't the fault of Conservative backbench soft Brexiteers or Remainer rebels. That wasn't the fault of the chair, that was the fault of the government which hadn't made up its mind what it wanted by way of Brexit beyond merely the incessant articulation over a period of years of a slogan. And that struck me as frankly peculiar. You then had, at the time of Chequers, the resignations both of Boris Johnson and of David Davis, and then that period of negotiation leading up to what I will call the deal. I think outlined initially on the 13th of November 2018 and then confirmed on the 25th of November and specifically with that previously dangling and unaddressed issue of the Irish border addressed by means of the much derided and loathed and hated backstop. That backstop meant effectively indefinite membership of a customs union unless at the end of the transition period agreement could be reached. And I completely understand why to large numbers of Conservative members that provision was anathema, which is not to say that I think it's a bad idea, but I understand why to large numbers of Brexiteers it was anathema. The significant thing to me came the following day when on the 26th of November 2018, the Prime Minister came to deliver a statement in the chamber on her agreement. And I must emphasize, ladies and gentlemen, it was her agreement, including the backstop. She sometimes behaves subsequently as though there's this rather curious foreign body that has entered the text called the backstop. And we've all got to resolve to persuade the 
European Union to remove the backstop. The backstop was something to which she herself had quite explicitly and apparently, without anxiety, signed up. But when she came to address the House on the 26th of November, I was very struck that in the two and a half hours of exchanges, there were 124 questions put to her, if memory serves me correctly, by backbenchers, of which no fewer than 96 were hostile. In fact, in the following day's newspapers, if I recall correctly, there was some moaning about the fact that it was an hour before a supportive backbencher was called to question the Prime Minister. Well, I like to think that the Speaker has got some basic skill set in the chair, but the psychic quality is not amongst the qualities of the chair. And I called certain people on grounds of seniority, chairmanship of a relevant select committee, former senior ministerial status, and so on. And I have to admit to you, there were a number of people who stood up to excoriate the government, whom I had rather thought would probably be more on the supportive side. But it was an absolute clamor of almost remorseless opposition to what she had to say. There are always loyalists, and every party needs those but it was very, very strongly against her. So that seemed to me to be a very important straw in the wind. You will recall that the government then scheduled a debate that was going to be five days. They pulled it after three days when 164 people had already spoken, which I must say I thought was lamentable. And they then rescheduled it for early January. And again, wanted there to be five days. Governments, by the way, never normally allocate more time. They usually want less time for debate. This wasn't a sort of benevolent, generous, public-spirited, other-regarding act on the part of the government, tendering to the ministering to the wishes of members of parliament. What it was was the government was playing for time. The government very much hoped that the longer the debate, the more they might be able to whittle down the number of rebels. In fact, I think the contrary effect by virtue of the sheer irritation factor occurred, and opposition became something of a flood. And you will recall that the government lost first by 230, and then on March the 12th by 149, and then at the third attempt when I said, yes, okay, fair enough, you can put it again, but it has to be with a different motion. You can't just keep bringing back the same proposition browbeating, belaboring, and dare I say it, bullying colleagues into voting for something for which they don't want to vote. It was eminently apparent to me, and to most people with eyes to see, that the House of Commons didn't want to endorse the propositions that the Prime Minister was putting to them. So they suffered those three defeats. And then there was that key moment in the debate, Tim, when we had the indicative votes in the latter part of March 2019, and I think the 1st of April 2019. Now, looking back, I just wonder whether that might have been a point at which an alternative outcome to that which was achieved could have been cobbled together. There were two days of those debates. The truth of the matter, however, is that people were by then, ladies and gentlemen, very much in their silos. They were inhabiting their camps and they weren't really all that geared to or in the market for second best, for compromise, for settling for something other than their preferred choice. It was very much a question of death or glory. And you will doubtless remember that the option that got closest was the idea of a permanent customs union as an alternative to the government's proposition, but it lost very narrowly, I think, by three votes. Support for a second referendum was less, considerable, but less, and it never really got very close to where it needed to be. And that really is the tale of the Theresa May premiership in respect of the attempt to secure Brexit. We then come to the attempted prorogation of Parliament, which I did believe and do say and will always argue 
was a constitutional outrage. I know I was criticized myself in some quarters for taking what people, critics, regarded as a partisan stance. It does seem to me, ladies and gentlemen, if the Speaker can't be partisan for Parliament, it's very difficult to see what the purpose of having a Speaker is. I wasn't trying to be partisan about the issue. I was partisan in support of Parliament. Parliament had a right to have its say and have its way. And I thought to close down Parliament for five and a half weeks with the explicit purpose of circumscribing and dramatically limiting the scope for the debate on Brexit in the run-up to the crucial European Council in October 2019 was simply wrong. But it doesn't really matter whether I think it's wrong or not, or whether Antoinette thinks it's wrong, or Tom Brake thinks it's wrong, or any other parliamentarian at the time thought that it was wrong. What mattered was that the Supreme Court thought it wrong, and of course it wasn't a sort of narrow nip and tuck matter, a 6-5, a 7-4, you know, getting towards penalties at the end of a Champions League enticing encounter. It was a monumental thrashing of 11-0. Did that cause the government to say, well, we're sorry. We realise that we got this wrong. We apologise to the House for our mistreatment of it. What are those pigs I see flying in front of my very eyes, ladies and gentlemen? Far from it. Instead, they just got angrier and angrier and angrier and upped the high octane and high decibel and high emotion level of the debates and they were eventually able to secure what they wanted, but not before a very important mission on the part of members of parliament who weren't part of the executive branch. And I do want to broach this issue because I know it is a matter of controversy and it deserves to be aired. I did make other controversial decisions from the chair about which I'm very happy to be questioned and challenged. But in the approach to the beginning of September, I was asked by a number of parliamentarians, would I be open to the idea of standing order number 24, which allows for emergency debates, being used with a view to colleagues getting a vote to secure control of the order paper in the House, the agenda for Parliament's deliberations, the aim being to pass a law that would prohibit that would outlaw a New Deal Brexit unless it was specifically authorised by Parliament. I absolutely admit to you, as I have said previously, that when Standing Order 24 was inserted into our standing orders after a reconsideration of those orders by the Modernisation Committee a little over a decade ago, it wasn't then for the purpose of such a debate, and it wasn't anticipated that it would be used as the trigger mechanism for an attempt to pass a law. In other words, it wasn't prescribed, P-R-E-S-C-R-I-B-E-D, by Standing Order 24 for the purpose of the initiation of legislation. But very importantly, nor was it proscribed, P-R-O-S-C-R-I-B-E-D, by that standing order. And therefore, when people said to me, but Mr. Speaker, this is unprecedented. The Speaker has never used or referred to or depended upon or prayed in aid that standing order for that purpose. My response was to say, oh, I completely accept that it is unprecedented for it to be used in that way, but the answer to the Honourable Member, is that the circumstances are unprecedented. We have not previously been in this position. And the critical point I want to make as I draw to a conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, is this. The significance of that 2017 to 19 Parliament, as distinct from the previous eight years that I served as Speaker, and as distinct from all of the other periods of government in the post-war period, was that for a very sustained period between the June 2017 election and October 2019, there was no overall government majority. You had permissive rather than prescriptive standing orders. There was nothing in Erskine May to preclude the use of that standing order to allow Parliament to have its say and have its way. Looking back at that last Parliament, should it have done differently? Well, it would have been better if it had reached an outcome. It would have been better if it had been able 
not just to defeat things it didn't like, but to put in place that which it did like. That I accept. Does that mean members were wrong to vote as they did? For example, some telling me that they would vote only for a second referendum, but they weren't prepared to vote for what they regarded as a second order alternative, a customs union. Those are almost moral and philosophical questions, Tim, because they're inviting people to contemplate whether they should vote for something that they didn't particularly want for fear of getting something else that they want even less. And I'm not sure that I feel competent to pronounce on that matter, other than to say this, very much earlier in the group discussion, I think Matt Chorley at one point raised the question of the duty of a member of parliament. Was it the duty of the parliament to vote through Brexit? I think there are a number of answers to this. First of all, no parliament can bind its successor, and it remains an issue of considerable uncertainty and continued debate what the 2017 election meant. The government said, well, the vast majority of MPs elected were elected for parties that said they were committed to deliver Brexit, but it's not normally understood or expected that the opposition will vote for that which it doesn't want unless it also has the chance to get what it does want. Moreover, my simple proposition to you is this. The only duty of a member of parliament, the only duty of a member of parliament in the ultimate event, in the final analysis, when all is said and done, is to say and do what she or he thinks is right. That's very broad. It's quite general. Deliberately so. It may be that voting in a particular way will lose a member the whip or cause that person to be no confidence by his or her local party or turfed out by the voters. Those are, if you will, prudential or pragmatic consequences of particular courses of action chosen. But none of those outcomes, in my view, invalidates the central argument that a parliamentarian is there to do what he or she thinks is right. I don't accept, for what it's worth, the characterization of the last parliament as rotten, as useless, as hopeless, as treacherous. I simply don't accept that thesis. I know it's a widely held view. I think the last parliament was struggling to deal with the issue as best it could in the light of a referendum that told us nothing about what Brexit in the particular meant. So I want to be not an apologist, but a cheerleader for the last parliament. I can cope with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and people will say what they like about my own little efforts. I want to defend my parliamentary colleagues, who I think were genuinely doing their best to try to get a better outcome. In this parliament, as so many people have said, the prospects of parliamentary assertiveness are far less great. Not just because the government has already stripped the withdrawal legislation from the relatively strong position it had previously occupied, in which there were opportunities for parliamentary oversight of the negotiating mandate, of arrangements for devolution, of the possibility to take a view about the transition period, but more specifically because the government has got the numbers. So in this parliament, there are two things hugely in the government's favour. A, they've got the numbers, and B, the Brexit negotiations, which I think are going to be fraught and difficult, are being led by the Prime Minister at, for him, the most propitious time, early in the parliament, when he has got the sun on his back and a very large number of new, <coughs> aspiring, eager beaver Conservative members of parliament <laughs> who share his undiluted passion for what they consider a strong Brexit. They are entitled to their views. In my personal opinion, they suffer from the material disadvantage of being wrong. All right. Thank you. Okay, well, by my reckoning, we have time for about 124 questions, 98 of which are hostile. Uh, so we'll begin uh, with John Pete over there. Uh, we'll 
come over uh, uh, to the front here, and um, the have we got a, 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 a woman, a lady who would like to? No. Uh, okay. Well, uh, the gentleman here is offering to have a sex change. Uh, and the gentleman there with the with the uh, sweater on. So if you could just wait for the mic to arrive, that would be great. And I'll, I'll ask you for the three questions. Okay. I'll be brief, John Pete from The Economist. Um, as I didn't hear that. John, John Pete from The Economist. As a percipient observer, not just a speaker, I wonder what you thought about or think about the behaviour of the Democratic Unionist Party. Arlene Foster amended the deal that Theresa May got in order to extend the backstop to the whole of GB, not just to... Northern Ireland got what she wanted, and then the party proceeded to vote against it, and now it's back to a position of having the border in the Irish Sea that they said they wanted to stop. I wonder what you thought, think about all that. Okay, thank you. So, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, this will be lately editor of BrexitCentral.com. Uh, John, you've come a very long way since I, last saw, since I first saw you speak in public at a meeting at the Tory conference in 1998 on the Bruise Group platform alongside Norman Tebbit and John Redwood and Norman Lamont. Um, this is cool. It's a journey, a journey, yeah. Going back to slightly more recent history, can I take you back to the 3rd of February 2017? The Erskine May is very clear about the role of Speaker being impartial. I wonder, in retrospect, do you regret, in February 2017, at that meeting at the University of Reading, declaring, in answer to a question from a student, that you had voted Remain in the referendum, which your critics would say effectively made it impossible for you to claim to be an impartial and neutral arbiter on matters Brexit, having declared your personal view? Thank you. Excellent question. And then um, uh, you, sir. And Anthony Carey, a, a former diplomat. You said that uh, it was never seriously considered to introduce a threshold in the, in the Referendum Act. When David Liddington refused that uh, amendment, he, he said it's only a consultative vote and it's only indicative and it's not mandatory, so we don't need to put in a, a threshold. And yet the, the, the vote was subsequently treated as holy writ, uh, absolutely to be obeyed, and, and the marginal outcome of a consultative vote was treated as, as absolutely fundamental. I just wondered what, what you felt about that. Thank you. Uh, well, first of all, in response to the point about the Democratic Unionist Party, you know, I'm not greatly surprised by that. <laughs> Not particularly. I mean, the Democratic Unionists were making a point about not having Northern Ireland treated differently, and they wanted to put forward an alternative proposition of what they probably regarded as a quality of suffering, although I'm not saying that I would characterise it thus. But then they did what, in a sense, ultimately they always do, which is to put their own interests first. You know, the Democratic Unionists are absolutely ferocious negotiators. They're also, in my general experience, very much more genial on a personal level to deal with than is sometimes acknowledged. But I think I did make the point recently when I was doing a talk somewhere around the country and I was asked about the Unionists. Well, no, it wasn't somewhere around the country, to be precise, it was in Belfast. And I was asked about the DUP and I said I always got on extremely well with Jim Shannon. Who doesn't get on well with Jim Shannon? He's an absolutely lovable individual, a member for Strangford, but I said I got on very well with Nigel Dodds, whom I found personally courteous and accommodating, and I tried to be accommodating to him and the rights of his party at Prime Minister's Questions and so on. I said the only thing I would say, and I would say this to Nigel's face, is that the DUP are all right when things are going their way, but when things don't go their way, they can turn pretty quickly. And if ever they had any dissatisfaction about anything procedurally in terms of the conduct of debate or their opportunities for questioning, what would happen was that one or other of them, probably Nigel, but if not another on his behalf, would come beetling up to the chair, would remonstrate, and at the end, the same three words would always be uttered. It's a disgrace. <laughs> so, you know, you just have to reckon with the reality of negotiating and talking turkey with the DUP. I think it's an extremely hazardous enterprise. Now, as far as my good friend, and he is a good friend of mine, Jonathan Isby's question is concerned, the truth of the matter is, Jonathan has always been consistent. Jonathan has always been a very committed Brexiteer. Now, I think that the merits of consistency are overrated. I think it's more important to be right now than consistent through all time. But I respect the fact that he has been consistent and he's not spoilt our friendship over a period of 20 years. Do I regret that? The honest answer, Jonathan, is that I 
don't regret it. I mean, I can accept that it probably didn't help my cause to give that candid answer to, I think it was a question at Reading University. I don't think I said it in my speech itself, but if I did, I did. I think I said it in response to a question that, yes, I personally had voted to remain. But the interesting thing at the time was that there was a reaction of howls of outrage from the usual quarters for the Daily Telegraph and uh, other representatives of the, the bigger faction. But I remember John Whittingdale, a much respected Brexiteer colleague, saying that he was very, very surprised. He not only rather disapproved of me saying what I thought at the time of the referendum, but he was very surprised. And I subsequently said to him, John, that the very fact that you're so surprised does rather make the point that in the chair, I always did my duty dispassionately by all colleagues and all sides of the Brexit debate, as frankly I did in relation to every other debate. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I can't possibly expect, I'm not so deluded or self-focused or introverted as to expect that you all follow the detailed deliberations of Parliament across the piece. But if you look back a period of years, if you look back 15 years, it wasn't the norm when government statements were made to the House for every colleague to be called upon to ask a question. It was very common for statements to be cut off after 45 minutes or an hour. My practice, which some people loved and other people deprecated, was when I thought, this is the big issue of the day. This is what everybody wants to come in on. This is more important than the subsequent business, which I know, because I've seen the speaking list, isn't very heavily subscribed. This is what people want to prioritize today. So I'm going to make sure that everybody gets a chance to question the minister. And therefore, most of the time, I called everybody. And the only issue then was who got called before whom. And the truth of the matter is, and I love all of my parliamentary colleagues with equal doses of respect and affection, but there can be some competitivity between them. And people do tend to look over their shoulder, well, why do you call her before me? And there are all sorts of factors. You're looking at select committee chairs, you're looking at length of service, you're looking at whether somebody spoke the previous day. You know, you can't satisfy everybody. And now and again, colleagues would remonstrate with me if I didn't recognize their particular position, and I would try to take that on the chin and do better. But the overall point I'm making is that I called everybody. And what I specifically said, it is most convenient that the Honourable gentleman, possibly now the right honourable gentleman, I think still at the moment the honourable gentleman, it's only a matter of time before his elevation to the Privy Council, I feel sure if it hasn't happened already, the member for Harwich in North Essex, Sir Bernard Jenkin, has entered the room. I remember Bernard taking me on on the issue of alleged partiality of the chair. And what in all, and he did it very openly, and I respected him for doing so, what in all candour I said to Bernard and to other people is look, if you take the Brexit debate, my attitude from the chair was always to try to facilitate members of the House and to ensure very specifically that dissidents, that the independent-minded, that those who didn't just take the whip's line and crib sheet but wanted to make their own contribution would get the chance to be heard. And in our parliament, thankfully, unlike some parliaments where debates are concerned, the speaker chooses who speaks. The parties are not allowed just to put in lists and to stipulate that X is called before Y. We don't have that, as I'm afraid happens in many parliaments. The speaker, indeed, the speaker does actually decide who is called, and I tried to call everybody. And when the Brexiteers, before the word Brexiteer had even been invented, were busily tabling urgent questions between 2010 and 2016, and I thought that there was a piquancy and an urgency about them, I selected them. I selected, I think if memory serves me correctly, 15 between 2010 and the referendum in 2016 from what would be called Brexiteers. A number from Bill Cash, I think six, two from Bernard Jenkin, two from John Redwood, and a sprinkling of others. And I selected an emergency debate understanding Order 24 in the name of Bill Cash on a matter appertaining to the policies of the European Union because I thought that matter warranted the attention urgently of the House. And what I would argue is what's source for the goose is source for the gander. The Brexiteers were quite happy when the chair was accommodating them. And when I was selecting the John Barron amendment to the Queen's speech in 2013, but hey presto, when the new rebels were Justine Greening and Dominic Grieve and Sam Jima and Anna Soubry and Heidi Allen and the like, 
Then the Brexiteers didn't like it, and Oliver Letwin, those people being given their chance. Well, I'm afraid, you know, I can't account for what I'll describe as the rather unaccountable mood swings of the Brexiteers on these matters. So, I was simply trying to do what I thought was right. So, John, do you want to answer the, the last question? Then I'm going to have to wrap it up. I yep. blow my chance of ever becoming common speaker now by my uh, poor yeah, chair. There you have. Well, I can okay. take one more. The, the yeah, last it, was, one. it was the last one about the referendum being indicative. Yeah, that I don't buy to be honest, and it's an interesting question. I didn't recall David Liddington saying that, and I, but I absolutely accept it if you say he did. I'll be honest with you, I did think that the referendum, I don't buy the argument that it was purely advisory, to, to be honest, and there I think the Brexiteers have got quite a strong point. It wasn't binding in law, that's just a matter of fact, it wasn't. But I think those who just sort of said, oh, well, it was purely consultative, I think that's slightly bad faith. I don't want to assert bad faith about you personally, sir. I, I don't know, and I'm not suggesting that. But, but I, I think it's slightly unfair for people to say, oh, well, it was just consultative, to be honest. I mean, the leaders didn't go rushing helter-skelter around the country, campaigning, tub-thumping, doing rallies, public meetings, television debates and broadcasts, simply because it was a kind of glorified opinion poll. It was clearly intended that it would have actual effect. However, no parliament can bind its successor. And after the 2017 election, if you ask me, was it legitimate, was it legitimate for members of parliament to take another view? Yes, I mean, some people behaved as though it was an absolute mortal sin to refuse first to implement the 2016 referendum before contemplating any other. Well, I'm afraid I don't share that view. Parliament is entitled to change its mind. And the, it seems to me the interesting point, it's not an original point, but it's an interesting point and a valid point, and a point that's been made many times but needs to be made more often, is this. When the Brexiteers were busily campaigning for Brexit, it was all about Parliament taking back control. They fairly quickly lost interest in Parliament taking back control when the circumstances from their point of view in terms of the arithmetic in the House of Commons were less advantageous. Well, my view was, well, that was their hard luck. Tough cheddar. All right, well, no, I think we will have to leave it there because we have a, a, a great session coming up. I'd just like you to uh, join me in thanking John once again for giving his time. <laughs> <laughs>